the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello and welcome to the Situation Report today. Glad to have you joining me. This is the show where we do our very best every single episode to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stolnecker, and I am glad to be with you today. Today, we are going to uh, really look at a topic that is important to me. It should be important to you. It's a topic that I've discussed in the past, uh, but maybe look at it from a bit of a different angle. Today, we are going to discuss the topic of religious liberty. Before we jump into that, though, um, I would imagine if you've been to the grocery store recently, you've noticed that things are more expensive. Gas is more expensive. It doesn't matter where you live in this country. Things are more expensive. The economy, our economic future is uncertain. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we can do to protect our financial future for our families, for our children? What can we do personally? Uh, One of the things I would recommend is at least considering uh, adding gold and silver into your IRA, your investment accounts. Take a look, figure out how to do that, and see if that is the right fit for you. The place that you can start is with Lear Capital. Call Lear Capital, and you can get their free precious metals investor guide. You can also ask them about their Lear Advantage IRA that lets you transfer or roll over your old 401k or IRA into a gold and silver tax advantage IRA. Plus, Lear is offering right now crazy shipping, uh, free shipping, and up to $15,000 in bonus gold or silver with a qualified purchase. This is something you at least need (laughs) to take a look at. You can call for details, 800-489-6450. Lear Capital is the most rated precious metals company on consumer affairs with a near-perfect rating on Trustpilot. Call them at 800-489-6450. That is 800-489-6450. Calling that number, you will get your free kit, and there you will learn how gold has performed during periods of inflation, government debt, interest rate hikes, economic crashes, even wars, and how in all of those gold has been the financial bedrock asset in portfolios. Uh, One of the things I love about Lear Capital is that they are an American-owned company, proud to do business with Americans that share conservative values. Write this number down, 800-489-6450. Call them today, or if you don't want to call, you can click the link below in the show description and the show notes. Check them out. You will do yourself a great service by at least investigating Lear and what they have to offer. Religious liberty is something that is foundational. It is at the bedrock of what it means to be an American. We're going to talk about some of that today uh, as well. But religious liberty has been under attack in the United States, and I would argue that not just now has it been under attack, but it's been under attack for a long time. When we look at what God instituted, what God has given, we understand that the institutions established by God, we can go to Scripture and understand this. I've talked about this in the past, 
But the institutions are the home, that is the family, uh, the husband, the wife, the children, the family. God gave that institution, very important institution, in order for culture to function the way that it needs to function. He then gave us the government in the sense that established a political system of governance. He established for us what it is that rulers over us in a cultural or a political sense should do, how they should be governed, and how they should Govern that institution given to us by God. Um, we've talked a lot about that, but how important is it to understand that God gave that institution? The final institution we understand given to us by God is that of the local church. We have the family, that's local uh, family, close relational governance. We have the government um, establishing how our rights would be defended and protected, the structure for that given to us by God, and then the church. And we're grateful for all of those, but we know that all of those recently certainly have been under attack in America. I've talked in the past about why that is. I think so much of that is because those who are against God in the sense that they want to push off or rebel against God's plan and God's processes for humanity— push off and attempt to break down anything that God established. That would include the home. That would include the normal uh, process of governance. And that certainly would include the church. The argument currently is that the church is not protected, that religious liberty is not protected, and that the protections that we have enjoyed over the decades since the founding of our country established in the Constitution, uh, that the religious protections that we have enjoyed can also be taken away. Uh, they are simply a legal construct, if you will. We don't believe that to be true, and one of the reasons we hang on to the Constitution as strongly as we do and push back uh, against those who would diminish the value, the importance, or the impact of the Constitution is because we believe in so many ways that the Constitution simply prescribes or outlines, it describes what it is that God has established. I've talked about this a lot on this show. But thankfully, other people are helping us to understand the fact that so many of our rights were not given to us by the government. And interesting aside, the government's job is to protect our rights, to defend our rights, uh, not to give us our rights as humans. This is what the Declaration of Independence talked about, those inherent rights given to us by God. Uh, but many are arguing that the rights that we have were given to us by the government. And yet we can understand that many of the rights that we enjoy as Americans, we enjoy as Americans, and they were important to our founders because the founders understood, as we should, that those rights were not given to us by the government, by a governing body, by politicians, by rulers, but rather by God. And today we're going to discuss the natural right of religious liberty. The natural right of religious liberty. What do, we, what do we mean when we talk about natural rights? In, in a lot of areas we talk about natural rights. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean they are our rights by nature. Uh, we could say this as people who believe in God and would desire to follow his plan for our lives and for humanity in general. We believe that natural rights are those rights given to us by God in nature or in creation. These are the rights that God gave to us as humans. 
This is why we value human life. This is why we are against slavery and abortion, because the right to live is not a right that a government gets to grant. It is a right that God gave to us. It is a natural right. It's built into who we are as created by God. We'll argue today, and I'm going to read a great article that's found on the Heritage Foundation's website, heritage.org, about the natural right of religious liberty. I want to have this discussion because if we believe simply that the right of religious liberty is something that's given to us by the government— then we also have to believe that the right of religious liberty is something that can be taken away by the government. One of the many things that makes our Constitution different than the governing documents of so many other nations is that our founders began with the premise that God has given to us those inalienable rights, those rights that cannot be taken away because they come from God that we have to establish a form of government, These, this is our founders, have to establish a form of government that reflects what God has built into us and gives us the ability or the authority as governors, as those who rule, who lead, to protect what God has established. This is so important. We can give up our rights if we want to, but when we understand that the rights ensconced in the Constitution are rights given by God, (laughs) then we also see government in its right place. Government's place, then, is to protect or to defend the rights of the individual. Now, I will not argue that all the rights that we have as Americans were given to us by God, but the fundamental rights, particularly those found in our Bill of Rights— are rights that we have to view from a sovereign lens. They are rights that come from nature, nature derived from creation, creation from God. These are rights given to us by God and to be defended by the government. I'm going to read through this article today and uh, share some notes along the way. This article can be found on the Heritage Uh, Foundation's website, heritage.org, written by Richard Wrench. Richard is the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies. He is also an AWC Family Foundation Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You can find more of his writing on uh, the Heritage Foundation's website. But I want to begin reading this, and a lot of this is um, uh, uh, Richard's um, description. Uh, Let me start. Let me hit that again. Sorry. A lot of this is uh, Richard's um, breakdown of a book written by another author that we're going to get into here in a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Uh, Philip Munoz, um, but I want to read through this. It's so helpful for our perspective, and my goal is very simple. We talk about giving you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. Uh, Here it is. Uh, Your right to religious liberty, your right to assemble, is not a right that the government gave to you. Therefore, they cannot take it away. Let's jump into this article, and uh, I, I want to hopefully reinforce that with you. He begins by saying, The Supreme Court put a formidable stake through the heart of 75 years' worth of secularist jurisprudence with its recent decision in Carson v. Macon. Uh, This, by the way, this is my commentary. Uh, This, by the way, is a decision that a lot of people have ignored. (laughs) It kind of went undetected, uh, but extremely significant. He goes on. Here, the court, building on recent public aid decisions, held that a generally available school choice program cannot discriminate against religious schools that also feature religious instruction as part of the curriculum. I'm going to pause here. Get what's happening. He he builds a case. He's going to continue to build it. But get get what's happening here. Uh, The decision by the Supreme Court in the case of Carson versus Macon said that school choice, and that's a uh, a public uh, policy decision. It's a policy that governments allow individual parents to decide where their tax money that's been set aside for education, the education of their kids, will go. So a parent can decide, I want the money that comes from my taxes to pay for my child's education not to go to this public school, but rather to go to this private school or this charter school, this other school over here. I want to redirect those funds there. That's school choice. I've talked about school choice before on this show as well. But if we want better public schools, we should be people who are in favor of school choice. The public education system, particularly public teachers' unions, are against school choice because it gives students who are in poorly performing schools the opportunity to move, and when they move, the money goes with them. If we believe in competition, then we would also have to believe that public schools who don't have to perform well to keep students right now, would have to perform better for students to stay there. This is a great policy. And many communities are uh, beginning to put in place the opportunity for parents to make this decision. So when this decision took place by the Supreme Court, I'm saying a lot of words, please stick with me. We're going to get somewhere. The Supreme Court determined that the government cannot discriminate against schools in these school choice programs that teach religious curriculum. They can't discriminate against that. This is very significant, not just for school choice, but for the larger discussion of religious freedom. He goes on here. The decision is not only a tremendous boost to protecting the free and equal participation of religious schools in school choice programs, but a signal that the Establishment Clause cannot be turned against the Free Exercise Clause under a play in the joints theory. Institutions should not lose public support simply because they have a religious character. Any purported Establishment Clause interest that a school district or state might have in protecting public education dollars from religious influence will not justify the refusal of funds to religious schools under a generally available program to schools. Again, he says a lot, (laughs) but it boils down to this. 
uh, we talk about the Establishment Clause. And the Establishment Clause simply is that government cannot establish a religion. He says, or makes the case, the Supreme Court made, that the Establishment Clause cannot be pitted against the Free Exercise Clause, that is, the Free Exercise Clause of religion, the freedom that we have to exercise religion, cannot be pitted one against the other in school choice. This is significant. He goes on, there was a time when a religious school could not have exercised its institutional liberty to inculcate theological instruction if it wanted to receive public funds in a school choice program. As John McGinnis succinctly notes in this space, such a requirement would be unconstitutional in any number of other contexts, including free speech. Under the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions, public founding could not be pulled on account of a teacher saying something the government disagrees with. The choice can't be butter or free speech. The decision in Carson makes clear that the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions is as applicable to free exercise as to other constitutional rights. Many would argue that in light of these victories, we are recovering the framers' understanding of the religion clauses and their purpose of protecting religious liberty, which fosters religious practice. Get that line. Uh, We are recovering the framers' understanding of the religion clauses and their purpose. What is their purpose? Protecting religious liberty, which then fosters religious practice. However, Philip Munoz, whose religion clauses scholarship is incredibly learned and thoughtful, now provides significant evidence of a natural rights basis for religious liberty in the American founding. With a complete study in his new book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Munoz contends with deep support that this natural rights foundation is the most historically accurate formulation of religious liberty. Boy, that is significant. I'm going to pause there. Uh, Munoz, Philip Munoz makes the case in his new book, and this is what the author of this article is talking about, that the reason the framers of the Constitution understood that protecting religious liberty was important and that protecting religious liberty would then foster religious exercise or religious practice, the reason that's where our founders sat was because they believed that Religious liberty was a natural right. It was given to us by God, not established by the government. When we talk about the freedom of religion, many will talk about the freedom from religion, (laughs) the separation of church and state, this idea that we as a governing body, as a government, cannot establish a religion means that we need to exclude all practice of religion in public places, is the complete opposite of what the founders intended. That the founders intended that the government would not establish one religion over another. That they were protecting religious institutions, organizations, and practices, not the other way around. And we've gotten this so backwards. But when we believe that religious practice, religious liberty is a natural right given to us by God that puts the government back in its place of protecting the free exercise, as the Constitution says, thereof. We'll continue reading. Munoz adduces a tremendous amount of data in this regard. He acknowledges the depth of originalist scholarship on religious liberty and the American founding, but he is not satisfied with the current state of knowledge, This book contends that we have neither grasped the Founders' natural rights understanding of religious liberty, 
nor accurately appreciated how it would inform First Amendment church-state jurisprudence, he writes. In this light, Munoz sets himself the task of documenting and explaining the Founders' understanding of religious liberty as an inalienable natural right. Man, that's so important. We have been living through, this is my commentary now, we have been living through a time, a moment in time, a moment in history where the government has said, because of all of these things going on, we the government will tell you the church that you cannot meet. You can't get together. You can't self-govern. We, the government, will tell you what to do. We have the right because we gave you the right to assemble. You all have helped build my pillow into the incredible company it is today. Now, Mike Lindell, inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants to give back to our listeners. Right now, MyPillow is offering exclusive offers on their bed sheets, their six-piece towel set, and even offering an extended 60-day money-back guarantee. Orders placed now through December 25th will have an extended money-back guarantee through March 1st. The bed sheets are marked down as low as $29.98, and believe me when I say you will get a great night's sleep in these. Their six-piece towel set is made with USA cotton, comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths, typically retailed at $89.98, and is now just $39.98 with the promo code. There is a limited supply, so be sure to order now. Call 1-800-870-0283. Use the promo code SITREP, or go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use promo code SITREP. Munoz's position is that really the government has no place in telling us what we should and should not do. I'll continue reading. Munoz argues that many justices have intended to root their interpretation of the religion clauses in the American founding. From conservative originalists to the likes of Justice William Brennan, all have wanted us to know that their decisions find support in the historical record of the founding. Perhaps nowhere has this been more apparent than in the wall of separation thesis advanced by Thomas Jefferson in his famous 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptist Association. The Danbury letter first appeared in Reynolds versus the United States in 1879. The case that ruled that the prohibition placed on polygamy was not an infringement of religious liberty. Many know the phrase from Everson versus the Board of Education, 1947, where it was employed on behalf of a secularist understanding of the religion clauses to undo the various ways that state and local government institutions and religious institutions were mixed through prayer, instruction, public aid, and then numerous other ways. Jefferson's letter did not articulate the original understanding of the religion clauses, but one more particular to Jefferson himself. He distinguished between beliefs which the government could not regulate and actions which it could regulate. Moreover, the state of Connecticut had an official and, at the time, lawful religious establishment in the Congregational Church. The federal government was powerless on matters of state religions, uh, religious regulation. Whatever Jefferson's letter stands for, it was primarily exhortatory, offering a rendering of Jefferson's proclivities more than an accurate exegesis of the amendment's text. Munoz argues that few, if any, of the framers accepted Jefferson's position. In relying on the Danbury letter, both Chief Justice Morrison Waite in Reynolds and Justice Hugo Black in Everson went outside of the First Amendment to construct it. But their materials reflected what they wanted to find, not what the religion clauses were intended to do. Um, I could pause there. I will pause for a second. 
and give brief commentary. This has come up again and again. If you listen to this show, you've heard of uh, Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. Um, what exactly he meant by that is unclear and certainly has been argued since he wrote it and since it was discovered. But as with many things, people have taken from his opinion in that letter what they wanted to get from it, what they wanted to establish or uh, extrapolate from it. This is what always happens. And so we have come to the conclusion that our Constitution says that there should be no religious practice in public places because of a single letter that has been argued about the meaning being unclear by Thomas Jefferson instead of understanding what the, the founders actually intended. He goes on here, The indeterminacy of the religious clause owes Munoz ads to their very origin. Those drafting the Bill of Rights engaged in something of a concession to the anti-federalists who wanted a Bill of Rights. The Federalists in the First Congress didn't really believe in the amendments and gave them the attention they believed they were owed, which certainly wasn't detailed or lengthy. The wording of the First Amendment and the relative sparseness of debate over it during drafting and approval reflected a prevailing consensus about religious liberty. The federal government wouldn't establish a national church, wouldn't interfere with religious belief and activity, and wouldn't interpose itself into the state's pre-existing religious establishments or any state laws that touched on religion itself. One sure understanding of the First Amendment's religious, uh, religion clause, notes Justice Clarence Thomas, is that they are a provision of federalism meant to not constrain state governments. Now, that's determinacy of a kind. The undetermined nature of the religion clause uh, creates an opportunity for Munoz to enter the so-called construction zone to formulate a natural rights jurisprudence for them. The upshot of this method is greater, uh, greater certainty for both the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. The downside is that natural rights philosophy as the authoritative understanding of the religion clauses could also leave much activity that religious institutions and their members engage in relatively unprotected. Munoz states this forthrightly. If so, then religious believers will continue to need an array of exemptions and conscience protections at all levels of government. So, again, there is some friction that comes from this understanding and how uh, those natural rights are protected. Uh, he continues here, Was Justice Antonin Scalia correct in Employment Division versus Smith in 1990 when he stated in the court's majority opinion that there was no constitutional right to a religious exemption from validly enacted laws? Munoz says yes. Absent federal and state religious freedom and Restoration Act legislation, Many aspects of religious practice would surely be at the mercy of rapacious federal and state bureaucrats who would exploit this legal conclusion to the full in the absence of statutory exemptions. Think Obamacare contraception mandate. Ad infantum. This obviously does not indicate Munoz's construction zone of natural rights as the ground of religious liberty, but it should at least give us pause. Is there a deficit in understanding that arises from the decent but thin anthropological account of religion that Munoz works from in arguing the natural rights of religious liberty? What is natural right of religious liberty? Such rights are inherent in the sense that they inhere in the individual on account of human nature. 
They are natural in the sense that neither the state nor any other human authority creates them. Munoz cites George Washington's powerful letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport. He quotes here, It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights to reflect the founders' shared natural rights understanding of how religious liberty attaches to human beings apart from any state action. Munoz undergirds his argument by noting how natural rights language form the core of religious liberty in the new state constitutions and their declarations of rights. Eight states during the founding era adopted such declarations and either noted explicitly religious liberty as a natural right or adopted religious liberty in a manner consistent with a natural rights framework. Twelve states would adopt new consti- a new constitution between 1776 and 1783. South Carolina alone refused to recognize religious liberty, opting instead for tolerance as the superintending principle between the state and the church. He continues on talking about the book. Um, this paragraph down, a couple I'm jumping down, says this, I want to be clear that I am not arguing that it is false either as a matter of constitutional history or understanding, nor that it is a wrong account of religious freedom. To draw from Martin Diamond's famous observation about the American founding, Munoz provides a low but solid ground defense of religious liberty, and one that we can take pride in as Americans. But we should also insist that religious liberty is not only an individual right of worship, belief, and opinion. The real exercise of such liberty requires something more." We might begin with what should be a common observation. Religion is practiced corporately, institutionally, and relationally. We do religion with others who are bounded by doctrine, practices, history, and the judgments of both religious authorities and their neighbors. Religious liberty surely inheres in persons, but it is exercised as part of our relational personhood. That is why religious liberty is more than just worship and religious exercise, but includes the decisions, ministries, and practices that religious institutions engage in as the practice of their faith and doctrine. Churches must be free not only to meet and pray, but to proclaim their teachings and apply them in education, health care, welfare, and a myriad other offerings they choose to make to their congregation and to the wider public. This is religion correctly understood, and one that incorporates and builds on the natural rights of religious liberty that Munoz has painstakingly documented as the consensus framers' doctrine. The completion of religious liberty is in the medieval conception of freedom of the church, which is able to employ its real and effective armature against the state edicts and protect the freedom of its members to practice freely their faith. The court has come close to saying this outright, notably in the 2012 Hassana Tabor case, where it unanimously upheld the ministerial exception doctrine for churches to choose their own clergy as an institutional matter. While not stated as such, freedom of the church is one crucial part of what the framers were protecting in, the, in not establishing a national church. They wanted congregations and churches to be free to practice their faith They merely established articles of peace between these religious groups, in the words of John Courtney Murray. One chapter builds on three different paths to a natural rights to religious freedom as articulated by Thomas Jefferson. 
James Madison's memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments, and the Founding's Era sermon of Isaac Bacchus. Both Jefferson and Madison stressed different uh, and contrasting aspects of the right of religious freedom. Jefferson's and Madison's accounts seem to exemplify the potentiality for wide-ranging secularism. For Jefferson, our minds are created free by God and cannot refrain from accepting the evidence put to our minds to know the supreme will of God. The mind is free but must accept evidence it finds to be true. Therefore, any attempt by the state to constrain or direct belief will fail and is therefore ontologically unjust. But conduct or the uh, but conduct or the incidentals of religious worship as opposed to belief can be regulated by the government. We can wonder at the end of the day what evidence did Jefferson think could really be adduced for us to know anything about God. His autonomous and emancipated account of religious belief leaves religious liberty as a right that survives on thin gruel. Madison's assessment in the Memorial of Remonstrance is exclusively individualistic, almost anti-clerical, as both John Courtney Murray and Gary Rosen have separately argued. Madison seems rooted in opinion formation, but divorced from actual engagement with what religious belief means in the social and political sphere. He might have duties to God, but they don't seem to mean nearly as much as political rights and duties to the lives that we live, Rosen argues. Munoz does an admirable service on the pervasive understanding of religious liberty as an inalienable right present among the framers. Unfortunately, that specific understanding was not directly appealed to in the first Congress when it debated and approved the Bill of Rights that was sent to the states for ratification. Munoz enters the originalist construction zone to show why it should be the definitive understanding of the religion clauses. His case is convincing, and given the confusion we live under, clarifying. Rather than attempt to go into the originalist construction zone as Munoz does, might we do even better? We should argue that the school of Western freedom was really the freedom of the church which gathered man into its doors, elevated his soul above the state, and provided protection and flourishing to his essential activities. The modern democratic West tried to replace freedom of the church with freedom of conscience. That undertaking gives us, however, part of the truth about man's worship and all the related practices and expressions of it. Rather than endless originalist understanding of religious liberty, we need to articulate that our Constitution protects the individual and corporate nature of religious liberty and then instantiate this freedom in policies and institution, uh, institutions that make this a living reality. Uh, that is a great article. Again, it's a heavy article. It's dense. But Richard Reinsch, he not only talks about the book um, that was written on this particular topic by Philip Munoz, uh, but he breaks down exactly what was meant and then what we can do with that. Really, it boils down to this. And, and this is why I wanted to bring this to you today. I want you to think about this. We need to think about this. We need to think about all of our rights this way. The church in so many ways is getting this wrong. We have seen this happen recently, as I mentioned earlier, as churches have consistently, not all, but consistently, generally gone along with local governments that have said, you need to do this, you can't do that. We're going to govern the way that you practice what you say you do as a church. Uh, we're going to tell you what you can and can't do, when you can do it, where you can do it. But we only go along with that when we believe that the right 
of assembly, the right of religious worship, the right to be together and worship God as we see fit, that those rights were given to us by the government. Those rights were not given to us by the government. They were given to us by God and not only given to us by God, but demanded that we practice (laughs) by God himself. The church was God's idea. It was instituted by God. It was given to us by God. And it was given for the purpose of not only gathering believers in a place common that they could commonly worship God, but a place where the Bible could be preached and taught, where people could, in congregations, learn together, where prayer could be congregationally entered into. Uh, Men and women, Christians, fellow believers, lifting one another up in prayer before God practicing the worship of God and the living out of that worship of God as their conscience demanded as they see fit. This understanding that religious worship is a right given by God, it's a natural right, should undergird how we view not only our own worship of God, but how we institutionally act and interact with the government. Now, I've had wonderful guests on who have talked about this. I've talked about this in the past. Uh, The church, to the extent that it can, should be an incredible incredible partner to local governments. I I believe that. I believe the church in every community should be salt, (laughs) uh, that preservative against evil. Light shining the truth into the areas in which truth needs to be shined. I think that the good things churches do and historically have done have been a blessing to local communities. Uh, Caring for the poor, caring for the homeless, uh, caring for those in need, whether it's physical need or spiritual need, uh, other needs. The church has always historically rushed in and handled those needs. The church should be seen as a benefit to local governments. But there is a line, and the line is when the government tries to step over what God has established and insert itself in areas that it has no right or place. Not only when the church governs, uh, when the government governs the church, not only is that unconstitutional, but it violates God's natural law, what God has established. And as so many are struggling through right now, Um, what a church is and what a church should be doing and how the church should respond to so much of what's happening in culture. The starting point to understand and the starting point to answer those questions is realizing that the right to worship God as we see fit is one that was given to us by God and therefore should be governed by him alone. Um, Much more could be said on this, of course. I've said a lot. Uh, I would encourage you to go and check out this article. It's called A Low But Solid Grounding for Religious Liberty. It is on uh, heritage.org by Richard Wrench. Uh, Other articles you can find there on this uh, topic break it down so well and so clearly. But we've got to think right on this. Think right on this. Don't think the government can take away your rights because they've given you your rights. The government cannot take away what God himself has established. Hope that's a help to you. Spend some time thinking on that. And um, again, many of these conversations are starting points 
but we need to start. <laughs> and so I would encourage you to do just that. I appreciate you listening and I'm very grateful for the audience that we have and for the folks that join us. If you're not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do that now. You can subscribe wherever you're listening from. There's a place for you to do that. Go ahead and subscribe. Hit that button and you will have this content as soon as it comes out. That'd be fantastic. Share this out with other folks. Uh, that is the best way to grow our platform and continue to grow our opportunities to have great guests on, to have great conversations, to talk about things that actually matter, those issues that can help us navigate an ever-changing culture. And we love to invite more folks to join us on that journey. You can also go to YouTube. You can find our channel there. Go to YouTube, search for The Situation Report. You'll find us there. And uh, this is there. Other incredible content is there. That's kind of the, the uh, archive of all of our shows. Now, once in a while, we have a show that YouTube doesn't like, so it doesn't make it over there. Uh, you can always find that on the Salem Podcast Network, of course. Um, but most of our shows are there, and that is an easy place for you to leave us a comment, for you to interact with us, and then for you to share that content with others. You're on YouTube. They're on YouTube. Share that out there. That would be fantastic. Appreciate you listening, and if you are watching, thank you for doing that. Look forward to talking to you next time. We were not made to live in isolation. Sadly, many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. A lot of guys end up drinking, a lot of guys end up losing hope. Someone will go to the VA and they'll try to get, you know, prescription medications to help with PTSD. You know, they'll get pills for anxiety, they'll get pills because they can't sleep, now they'll get pills for depression before they know it. they're taking 12 different medications. And when it's not working out, these guys lose hope, and that's why there's 23 guys a day committing suicide. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. As a result, we've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Everything they said just kept hitting me in the heart over and over and over again. It's like all the things that I didn't know that I needed to hear. And uh, I opened my heart to God that week, dude, and like, <laughs> I've been a different person ever since. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. We provide our programs and resources, including travel, at no cost to our warriors. I remember talking to a licensed uh, social worker who actually handed me a pamphlet to Mighty Oaks. So I went. And I'm glad I did. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. Our mission is to serve and restore our nation's warriors and families who have endured hardship through their service to America and to help them find new life purpose through hope in Christ. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.